Springtime has come. Jeremy and Ed are fucking. They they are. They've got the. Get my ass the, kicked. They get their ass kicks. They got the the pollen oh. version uh, or the cordyceps version of pollen uh, invading their brain. Meanwhile, I'm sitting here in Melbourne, fine for the first sick. time all year, putting on um, my fucking like. Uh, heavy knitwear sweater like I'm fucking going out to sea to to go fishing or something <laughs> I don't know about you Ed but I feel like Marky Mark in that M. Night Shyamalan movie I'm like <laughs> Zoe Deschanel the trees they're trying to kill us yeah <laughs> they are literally <laughs> <laughs> <We> are <laughs> oh but we'll survive we'll survive we'll survive, friends and enemies it's episode 247 of this machine kills i'm jathan joined by ed and producer jeremy as always now very recently there was a just an absolutely stellar article in wired magazine um in in partnership with lighthouse reports which is a investigative uh, journalism outfit out of the netherlands looking at a topic that we've touched on before, um, that we've talked about around the use of algorithms and automated systems in welfare agencies. Um, but I, I, I think one reason, I think a, a very good reason why I want to spend today's episode largely talking about this article, which honestly I've not seen get anywhere near the amount of attention I think it deserves. Like I'm, I only heard about it because uh, the markup in one of their newsletters, you know, one of my favorite um, journalism uh, sites, you know, uh, it just does some of the, you know, we've talked a lot about stuff from the markup, but they were talking about this piece in one of their newsletters um, about how it's not only excellent, but really, really quite unique in terms of the kind of investigation that they have done and really unique both for journalism, academia, policy, uh, you know, think tanks, like have not been able to do the kind of reporting that this article does in large part because of the level of access they had to the automated system, the machine learning models, um, largely through uh, various and ongoing and hard-fought freedom of information laws look, uh, looking at um, an, out, an automated welfare fraud detection and, and, and welfare al- uh, allocation system in Rotterdam, which is a, a major city in the Netherlands. It's um, one of, if not the largest port city in Europe. But... Uh, uh, through a number of Freedom of Information Act requests uh, and 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 court bad or court wins, they were able to gain access not only to the 
training data, the code, uh, the data science, uh, the handbook for the data scientists working on this system, but the model itself. Uh, and this is unprecedented. This is a level of unprecedented access, a level of unprecedented ability to actually audit um, the system, to understand, reverse engineer how exactly it works, how it's making decisions. You know, this is a machine learning model, so it's it's crunching a lot of data, um, all kind of broken up into, I think, 315 different variables. But the relationships between these variables are not... Um, they're, they're not obvious. They're not static. Uh, they are, uh, you know, they are dynamic, right? The kind of, you know, changing one variable um, does not make a static change to the underlying risk score that the system points out. It only makes a change. It makes different changes depending on its interactions with other variables. I'll get into what that means specifically um, as we go through this. But in other words, it really shows the complexity of the decision making here, um, but in a way that goes beyond the kind of like, you know, the, the, the kind of defensive speculation um, that critics uh, and, you know, not even critics, right? Just people who want to investigate, audit, understand how these systems work are always put in a defensive position of having no idea how they work, having to speculate, having to, to uh, base our analysis and our conclusions on inference and induction, on um, theory, on what we know is generally true about these systems. Um, but we're always shut out from like having a really specific um, understanding of the mechanics, let alone the ability to actually test hypothesis you know, um, different uh, hypotheses to test different inputs and, and see how they affect outputs, to have this really um, unique ability to reverse engineer a model by having complete access to all of the training data, all of the code, all of the, uh, the, the handbooks and the model itself. Um, and that's what this article in Wired, Inside the Suspicion Machine, it's called, is based on. And it, it, it's, it's uh, fantastic also to the degree that not only it uh, validates a lot of what we know about how these systems work, which is that they reify and reproduce, uh, bury and amplify various different social uh, and structural biases around, say, ethnicity and uh, gender, um, and do so through some, you know, both obvious and non-obvious proxies. Um, but also to the degree that, like, uh, as we'll see, these extremely complex machine learning systems, which are based on just an insane amount of data and have uh, really uh, a lot of power and, and, and particularly discretionary power, power where the, the system itself is able to make decisions um, with little oversight or, or often even little understanding by um, these people who are meant to uh, you know, oversee it, uh, it really demonstrates not only how much power they have and how much discretion they have, but also to the degree that these extremely complex systems are um, 
little better, uh, if not actually worse than random guessing. Uh, we have essentially built uh, wildly powerful, wildly complex um, versions of a, 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 a like a technological sublime version of a random number generator and have allocated a lot of social uh, power to these random number generators by calling them machine learning systems, by saying they are data-driven, by saying they are objective, they are efficient, uh, all of this nonsense when, uh, when, when actually given access to the models, the code, the data, everything, you see that uh, it's little better than random guessing uh, in, in too many cases, right? And so, I think it's it's really quite surprising to me that you know I'm I'm extremely tapped into these uh, topic areas both journalistically and academically, um, and it's really wild to me that I've that this is an article that should have been. Um, all over my timeline. Uh, I should have been seeing people talking about this constantly. It came out a month ago, uh, and yet I only heard about it like a few days ago from a, uh, uh, a, a newsletter and from the markup. Um, so I, I want to, I want us to spend an episode actually giving this article its due, giving it the attention it deserves, and really kind of picking through. I think it's stellar findings um, because it is. It's a rare example of, you know, we have really concrete verification and validation of things that we know to be true theoretically. We know to hold um, in aggregate as a kind of general rules and principles. Um, and now we have just like stone cold fucking um, proof of them in a really specific uh, example. I think it's good, you know, uh, as you pointed out, this is a piece that is worth digging into for all of these, for all of the aforementioned reasons, you know, um, especially because I think we're starting to see, you know, we talked a little bit about in the last episode that piece in the New York Times column by Peter Coy, uh, positing that maybe AI and democracy could find ways to be melded together and that maybe one of the ways would be like creating more clearer ways of understanding what public sentiments were to guide policy. But I'll... Uh, you know, talking also about how in that piece, a lot of technologists and, techn and technocratic leaning individuals are consulted for visions of what democracy will look like. But what they're really offering is like, already we don't have a democracy and they're interfacing it with more technocratic you know, layers. And I think anyone who's interested in democracy and social coordination and allocation of resources and the welfare state and, and you know, whatever avenue or angle you want to approach state social policy and social relations you know what like the way in which a machine learning algorithm is being rolled out um in a welfare system is very important in almost every example i can think of it's been a disaster so one that leads one to already wonder what's going on here what kind of frameworks are they going to be using? What kind of biases are going to be embedded in there? Who's going to be um, hunted down, you know, by these algorithms? Because, you know, welfare systems, especially welfare systems that are going to be mediated by an algorithm, are also going to be likely means-tested or th believe that the means-testing is more defendable and palatable because it's being done by an algorithm. So they're likely going to be more strict about pursuing welfare fraud. And indeed, as we open up the article, it talks about how 30,000 people are getting welfare benefits, but thousands of them 
are investigated uh, under suspicion of committing benefits fraud. And then goes into some details about how, you know, one really, really the, the, the core way in which it's kind of shifted is that Rotterdam has, you know, contracted with Accenture um, in 2017 to roll out this, this algorithm that institutes a risk score. Risk scores become, you know, our favorites um, of a, uh, in, in kind of assigning or quantifying whether or not people should be covered or not covered. You know, Jenkins wrote written a lot of really good stuff about this. The first thing I read, one of the first things I read about it that made me think about it specifically with tech and populations was when, you know, you talked about uh, draining risk pools and kind of application of um, insurance logic and regulation of, and uh, in, in using insurance as a private form of regulation of people's lives. You know, so here are the ideas that we have this risk score, you know, the risk scores are these proven models that we can use to determine whether or not you're good to loan money to, whether you're going to do crime, whether you've done crime. And so they can be a good way to figure out whether you're a worthy recipient of welfare. Here, the things that are going to be used here, and they're coded, of course, are age, gender, and Dutch language ability, right? And of course, Dutch language ability is a proxy for race, right? As is like in the United States, when you're doing loans, you can't discriminate against people uh, based on their uh, their race anymore. So instead, you use their zip code because uh, everyone who lives in a certain zip code is almost certainly of a certain race because you already did segregation and you already did discrimination for the past two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten, twenty, thirty generations. And so it's not really looking at race. It's looking at something that just happens to be connected to race for intentional reasons. And here, Dutch language ability, of course, especially in the midst of waves of migration, you know, uh, because of Western aggression and Western invasions in in the Middle East, right? Um, that have let and, and and refugees from a lot of client states or from states that have been starting falling apart has led to a lot of uh, xenophobia in some of these countries. And you know, it makes sense. Well, it makes sense. From the xenophobic perspective, as a st- if you're a state planner, being like, we're going to code it for race so that people who look like us and sound like us are more likely to get it and more likely to keep it because they're more trustworthy because they're in our community already. And important here and a shift here is not only that that data ends up being you know, used for determining who gets the aid, but also who should be investigated for fraud. And so, I'm honestly surprised because as we'll see, like they ask some questions that are so seemingly non sequitur and unrelated. I'm honestly surprised one of the questions is not like, do you do you support uh, Zwarte Pita? Or do you uh, disagree with Zwarte Pete? If you disagree yeah. with, with Black Peter, Zwarte mm-hmm. Pete, then, uh, then I'm sorry, that's going to knock against your risk score. But if you agree... The Zwerpi is a venerable Dutch tradition, then you you the type of person that we like. <laughs> yeah, you know, one question could just be like, blackface? How do we feel about it? What's up? I could tell you the, the, that episode of Atlanta, I don't want to say it was in the third season when they were over there. <laughs> yeah. Was was like the best, was the best, uh, I don't know, the best like representation, I think, American television has, has actually had of what's going on with that and how people feel about it. Well, I mean, having lived in the Netherlands for a year, like, let me tell you that, like, it, it is really, cr- like, wild how much, like, they, 
uh, like Dutch language ability is pushed, even though every like like ninety eight percent of people are, compl- are are like totally fluent in English as well. Um, like there's a real strong kind of like like cultural nationalist push towards like you need to learn Dutch, you need to know Dutch, you need to you know integrate into um, Dutch society through uh, and by proving uh, that you are you know d- learning our language and 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 stuff like that like it really is it's crazy especially because like like i said the you know everybody's fluent in english as well um and and so like it would be just as easy to be like you know all right like dutch and english are our two major languages like you know most people if they're sec if they have a second language that you know it's going to be english right all right so but no they really do push this like Yo, no, this stuff. This is this is Dutch. You need to know Dutch, um, and and yeah, it's it's hard not to think that part of that is baked in, like a kind of baked in, um, you know, uh, like xenophobic nationalism. Um, and for some people, like the right wing politicians, like Gert Wilders and so on, um, it explicitly is very much a like you know a, a, like a strong nationalist um, position. Um, it's a you know and and. and a lot of it, I think, is a, re- a reaction to like the the kind of being part of the EU in this way of you know we want all the benefits of being in the EU except for all the things where like people who aren't from our country can come here or we're forced to take refugees um, because like we're part of the EU and stuff and so they they instead figure out other ways to filter these people out of society um, and Dutch language ability is absolutely uh, one way that it, it that it happens. I'd be curious, you know. You know, in your time there, talked a bit about how Dutch language ability is pushed. I mean, what are discussions like in, uh, domestically about? Is there any? Do people entertain the idea that there might be other ways of like triangulating that don't have to do with Dutch, lang- Dutch language ability, or is it just like such a convenient, important cornerstone? proxy that there's just like there's no there's no going around it in this at this juncture i don't know i think i think the like most normal people are like whatever you know like dutch like the netherlands is i mean it's it is very like homogenous and like in terms of like it's it's it, there's a lot of different people and they're like very strong and, and old um, ethnic communities that live there, but they are, but they are also very much like, like enclaves. Um, but like, I think the, like normal Dutch people who are like, I interacted with and with friends with and stuff like they like, have like, they're like, whatever like who cares you know like we all know english i don't like i'll speak to you i'll speak english to you it's like that's fine um i but i i think it's a it's more that like it's become a very convenient kind of like governmental um uh, way of uh, of enacting these filters um and we'll as we'll see and we can i think putting this in the context as well is interesting because like the the algorithm we're talking about um, with the Wired and uh, uh, our article is, as you said, a, a 2017 machine machine learning algorithm built by Accenture, but for Rotterdam. Um, so it's just it's the welfare um, system for one city, a big city, but just one city. Um, but in 2019, I remember that the uh, um, 
that the uh, uh, that the Netherlands one of these risks one of these welfare surveillance systems, um, which was based on uh, risk scoring as well, but that uh, at more of a like uh, a federal governmental level um, was found to be uh, a violation of European Human Rights Convention because the it was an AI used to detect fraud, um, and it was like so discriminatory um, outright and so invasive outright that it was found to be um, a human. Yeah. The, it, it uh, violated human rights. Um, and this was just one of these like systemic risk scoring systems used to detect fraud. Um, it, you know, and not, I don't, it's not the one that we're talking about in this article. right. Like there's very much a history of this kind of stuff. The Netherlands is not a Scandinavian country, but it very much is part of that, like Northern European, like, like strong welfare States, um, like the Scandinavian countries, uh, except as we know as well, that like, the Nordic model of like social democracy and social welfare is also largely based on being like extremely homogenous, like racially and culturally homogenous countries. Um, they also have like very strong, you know, kind of neoliberal flavors to them where it is about like rooting out fraud, detecting fraud, punishing fraud. Um, uh, you know, I'll talk, we can talk about this later. There's a prime example of this from Australia, um, which is like still ongoing called robo debt. It's this, it's built on the same exact kind of shit where it's like, you know, in other words, I think we're safe to say that, uh, uh, the very specific example of the machine learning system for the welfare, uh, for welfare, uh, in Rotterdam that this article is about is part and parcel of a broader model that has been implemented and replicated at various levels across various countries and continents in large part because the fact that this machine learning system was built by a censure is not an incidental uh, fact, but a really important fact because um, you think Accenture just had a contract to build this model for Rotterdam? Hell no. These consultancies work globally at scale. They don't build something bespoke and sell it to one client. They build something and then try to sell it to as many fucking clients as they possibly can, doing as little work as they can once they've built something. So, you know... Say that it's like these kinds of models are the are the model um, that's replicated all over the place, especially in these strong digital welfare states where they're like, yeah, we'll have welfare services, um, but as part of that, we will also have uh, you know very high tech and very aggressive. Uh, surveillance and accountability uh, and fraud detection and punishment systems um, accompanying that. This brings us to the algorithm, which was which which Rotten, Rotterdam took over in 2018. Discontinued after ethical review said this is bullshit in 2021, but continues to develop. This is where Ward comes in with its collaboration with White House reports. 
They got access, as Jathan talked about at the top of the episode, to the welfare fraud algorithm. And as they write, data used to train it, gaining unprecedented insight into how such systems work. This level of access, negotiated under Freedom of Information Act, has allowed us to examine the personal data fed into the algorithm, the inner workings of the data processing, and the scores it generates. And by reconstructing the system and testing how it works... We found that it discriminates based on ethnicity and gender. It also revealed evidence of fundamental flaws that made the system both inaccurate and unfair. And so as a result, they start to frame it instead of like a welfare, an algorithm or machine learning algorithm that is used to allocate resources. It's um, best thought of instead as a suspicion machine that takes all these characteristics you cannot control, your gender, ethnicity, female vulnerabilities, psychological profiles, character traits um, that may have developed out of, uh, for example, uh, signs of low self-esteem. This is grounds for suspicion um, if the caseworker enters a comment into it, into into the system. And as they write, the data fed into the algorithm ranges from invasive, the length of someone's last romantic relationship, and subjective, someone's ability to convince and influence others, to banal. How many times someone has emailed the city, and seemingly irrelevant, whether someone plays sports. And so despite the scale of the data, as, you know, as Jason also said earlier, it's just random selection, right? This is par for the course, right? These systems are not actually good at deciding or intuiting or understanding human relations and behavior. This is also part of the problem with the way in which people have been interpreting and interacting with ChatGPT, right? This idea that because that they're looking at a generated output and interacting with an interface that are designed to appear as if you're manipulating human language on one end and human ideas on one end, and it's responding in kind on the other, instead of it really just being like, you know, a statistical analysis or incredibly flawed, biased, and, you know, you know, uh, Goldberg racist machines or racist Goldberg machines, right? Um, that then spit out something that looks like it might be objective and sleek at the end. It's easy to convince people to surrender more and more of our lives to these things, to integrate these risk scores into into supplementing credit systems, right? Into also coming back and helping justify decisions about segregation, about work allocation, about credit worthiness, right? Um, when people talk about, you know, the their concerns and fears about, for example, social credit score, right? You know, we don't really get to, you know, uh, we all accept and understand why it might be terrifying to have actions that you do, as well as characteristics you have no control over, fall out of your ability to do anything with and instead be looked over, scrutinized by a machine that's suspicious of you and looking for a reason to deny you access to public goods and services. And yet... Our variant of that in the West is just a risk score, which is finding increasingly more of a wider audience. States deal with, you know, fledgling budgets and declining budgets or impulses and desires and coalitions looking to curtail social spending and saying, hey, what if we instead use this algorithm to figure out some criteria, some ineffable thing about each person that will determine their worthiness to get these scarce resources? And what if we presented it as a risk? We presented these people with risk scores. We presented these people in risk pools. We presented them in risk scoring models. 
we are pursuing objectivity, we're pursuing fairness, we're pursuing neutrality, we're pursuing bias-free models. Yet in reality, right, none of us get any real idea of what we're being judged on or a look at how the judgments are being made or calculated or tabulated or processed. And instead, you're supposed to trust that the output is fine, even though when almost every single example we've seen of these algorithms being designed, they have been cartoonishly racist in a way that, like, I feel like, yeah, you know, they're, they're a little better than random selection, but also random selection in societies where, you know, racism is still a big fucking problem, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not truly random in yeah. this way. It's it's random with some parameters, right? Like, uh, be racist, be sexist, uh, you know, discriminate against, you know, single mothers, for example, um, you know, but, but then do so randomly, right? Like, you know, like here's a bunch of parameters, um, you know, to, uh, to draw a boundary around the, the, you know, the, the group of people, the, the kind of, you know, the risk pool that we're talking about. And then from there, um, make random decisions about who's allocated welfare, who's, uh, or who's, uh, investigated for fraud. We, we've talked about the Dutch language requirement. Speaking Dutch is a requirement to get welfare um, in the Netherlands, which is itself just like uh, an insanely racist uh, you know, requirement to have. Um, or, or they have to prove that they are making, quote unquote, making an effort to do so. But all of this is uh, based on then like subjective decisions by caseworkers, right? Like, you know, interviews with welfare recipients by caseworkers who then uh, get to decide, like, do I think this person is making an effort? Um, do I think that this person is um, employable? or working hard enough to find a job if they are not employed, right? Like, like it's all these really subjective uh, observations that are then coded into the system. But like, um, uh, well, and to that too, I just want to note that like, you know, the Wired piece, you know, as they note, um, this is not a mystery. Like it's known that something like Dutch language requirements are a, uh, a proxy for, for uh, racial and ethnic discrimination. In fact, they, um, the Netherlands Court of Audit, which is an independent, independent body appointed by the Dutch government, is specifically pointed to, quote-unquote, fluency in the Dutch language as an example of a variable that could, quote-unquote, result in unwanted discrimination. If you know it's going to do that, and it's obviously going to do that, you don't need some fucking like independent high, you know, high court to point out the obvious. But even like if you know it's going to do that, and now you have a court pointing out that it's going to do that, and you still continue to do it, you cannot by any measure say it was unwanted discrimination or unintended discrimination. You have to drop that modifier. You have to drop that hedge, that shield that you can hide behind, unintended consequences, unwanted discrimination. When you know that A leads to B and you keep doing A, it's not because uh, B was unintended or unwanted. It's because that's what you wanted to do. That's what you intended to do, right? Like, so it's no mystery here um, 
but I, I think it's like even more so like to talking about how these kind of machine learning systems are often talked about in this like very technological sublime way of like, they are immensely complex. They surpass any human ability for analysis uh, or decision-making both in speed and scale um, that they, you know, that, that they are these black boxes that we don't know how they work, um, that they are alien intelligences, you know, whatever fucking nonsense that we use to talk about these machine learning models through, the lens of the technological sublime really starts falling apart when you look at how fucking rudimentary uh, and simple these seemingly sophisticated and complex systems are. As the uh, report points out, as we pointed out, the algorithm at, you know, accounts for 315 different attributes or variables to calculate someone's risk score. Um, and these are, you know, a lot of different stuff from, as, as you pointed out, Ed, you know, it's language, uh, it's ethnicity, it's neighborhood, but it's also things like um, just, you know, in the caseworker interview, you know, comments on motivation. Does this person seem motivated to find employment or, or to, for, to learn the language or to better themselves? Um, comments on attitude. Does this person show a, a, a spirit and enthusiasm or do they seem kind of despairing and, and down? Um, you know, any of these kinds of, of things, even comments about appearance, you know, uh, how, how are they dressed? Are they wearing makeup? Are they not wearing makeup? Are they wearing clothes that would be worthy for, you know, good for the interview? Or are they dressed schlubby? Like, the system accounts for all of these different attributes in its, in its uh, model, but it doesn't do so in, a, in a, uh, a qualitative or complex way. It does so in a hyper, in a binary way, literally a binary way, um, where any comment, so if there's a comment on uh, the person's appearance uh, that appears in the, so in the caseworker's interview notes um, with the subject, then that is marked into the system as a one, which is a, a, a true value. Um, and if there's no comments on appearance uh, in the caseworker's notes, that's marked into the system as a zero, a false value, literally binary. Importantly, it does not matter the content of the comment. It doesn't matter if the comment is like, wow, Ed is so enthusiastic and spirited. He is, you know, dressed really sharply. I think he's got such the right motivation, um, to, to, to better himself, to learn Dutch. He's working really hard at it. You know, uh, you know, all of these comments about your motivation, your attitude, your appearance, Ed, those would all be marked as uh, true values into the system. And because, those are true values. They negatively impact your risk score, even though they're all positive comments about you. And so like, like any comment at all, positive or negative, is marked into the system as being the same exact thing and thus, as a, and thus having the same exact, in this case, negative impact on your risk score. 
this is not something the caseworkers are told. Um, they don't know that this is how the system treats their comments. Um, and so they are, they are doing what they think they are meant to be doing, which is making detailed qualitative notes which are then fed into a simplistic quantitative model. Uh, and the model is designed to make any comment on uh, flexibility, on appearance, on motivation, on attitude, on any of these kinds of things, anything, if there is a comment, it is coded as a negative uh, for in the system, right? And so, like, it, it, it's so fucking simplistic. It's so, so literally binary uh, in this way. And it does it in this, like, insanely complex way. Uh, we know from the uh, investigation that uh, that the system, you know, the, the uh, Rotterdam system is uh, uh, called gradient boosting machine, uh, or it's called a gradient boosting machine. And it relies on um, essentially a bunch of decision trees, right? Like, you know, these really, com you know, complex mathematics to uncover patterns, uh, hidden patterns across large amounts of data, and it does so by building, um, you know, these decision trees. It really is just a bunch of stacked decision trees. And in the case of Rotterdam's algorithm, it's 500 decision trees. Um, and as I, I'll quote from the piece here, these trees categorize individuals based on a series of yes-no questions. At each question, a person can travel down the left or right branch until they reach the bottom of the tree. With no questions left, the decision tree gives the person a value. The values of all the 500 trees powering Rotterdam's algorithm and combined to calculate a person's risk score. The real decision trees in the model contain many variables and branches. Um, and then they go on to give some examples where... Even though there are these 500 you know, stacked uh, decision trees and they seemingly are meant to, you know, find all these hidden patterns, uh, account, you know, calculate, uh, you know, each, each of these decision trees um, is an addition to your risk score. And so the final risk score is just the aggregate, uh, you know, uh, score from all of the decision trees. It has already built into it these like really, really discriminatory features uh, in even this simplistic thing. And so um, they go on to say the real, you know, to understand how, you know, so they create, uh, they created these two different models or these, uh, these two profiles of potential welfare recipients, Sarah, who is a, um, a single mother of two children uh, and it, you know, is Dutch um, and then Yusuf, who is an Iraqi immigrant, um, single, no children, lives with roommates, was a teacher in Iraq, but uh, um, you know does not know Dutch and, and all of that kind of stuff. So they've kind of created these two different representations, these two different profiles um, as ways to illustrate the system um, and as part of their testing of the system where they created, I think, hundreds of different profiles in order to probe the system to see how it responds to different types of, of people um, being uh, uh, analyzed and having decisions made to them about the system. So here we have you know, Sarah and Yusuf. To understand how Sarah and Yusuf's scores are generated, Sarah is going to travel down a simplified decision tree. Sarah is the mother of two children she recently moved into a new apartment after splitting up with her long-term partner. And then they give an example. You can see how these attributes send Sarah down a specific tree, right? Is 
female? Yes. Has children? Yes. More than six recent addresses? Yes. More than 206 days with partner? Yes. Right. And so that gives us down like a, 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 a different uh, decision tree. But what happens if Sarah is male rather than female? As a woman, Sarah is asked about her relationship status, children, and living situation. As a man, Sarah is sent down an entirely different path with entirely different questions. Two people, two different paths, two different sets of questions, only by changing one attribute, gender. Right? And so suddenly, um, when, you know, when Sarah is marked as male rather than female. Again, this is all binary as well. No, 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 uh, uh, no, no nuance in terms of a non-binary set of, of answers to these questions. Um, but when Sarah is marked as male um, rather than female, rather than asking about her children, uh, her um, addresses, her relationship status, it starts to ask questions instead about uh, his language has he passed the language requirement does he have financial problems does he have a job right and so like baked into these these decision trees are insanely conservative and traditional stereotypes of 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 male of of male female um, gender roles in society, right? Um, the kinds of questions that are asked. The same things happen when you, uh, with uh, Dutch language ability. Um, you know, if you say yes to Dutch language, it sends you down one decision tree. If you say no to Dutch language, it sends you down a different decision tree. These decision trees are clearly marked proxies for racial stereotypes or ethnic stereotyping um, and, and differences. There's a really great feature in the port. It's a really great in the, uh, interactive piece, this wired port. Um, and I was playing around with it. They've got some toggles where you can change different variables to see how they change the score and the final risk ranking and thus your, your likelihood um, of, of being investigated for fraud. Um, and you can, and they've got some toggles that you can switch, uh, things like age. Are they under 30 or over 50? Gender, children, language. Have they missed a meeting? Do they have an addiction problem? Um, do they, you know, do they share household cost with, uh, with, with anybody else? Uh, you know, do they lack organizing skills? So both a mix of like objective and subjective things. And I was, and you can play around with the toggles. And it's really interesting to see that um, because these attributes are relational rather than static, marking, you know, going from male to female um, has a negative impact on the risk score. So, you know, if you mark female, it raises your risk score um, versus male. Because as we know, women are much riskier for fraud, uh, for welfare fraud than men as apparent as this model has baked into it. Um, and But importantly that the, it's not a static, like, you know, being male uh, adds, you know, five points to your risk score and being female adds 15 points to your risk score. It's also relational. So if you're female with children, that's going to add a different level of, uh, of risk score than if you're 
a, a male with children, right? So in other words, um, female with children is more risky than male with children. It's not like children is a static toggle or static attribute that if you mark yes or no, it adds a static um, a, a, you know, amount to your uh, risk score. It is in relation to the total profile of the person, which makes it more complex, but also and makes uh, the relationship of like discrimination and its impact more complex, but also does these things where it really heightens certain the relationship between attributes. So you know, you're going to be marked risky if you don't know Dutch. You're going to be marked risky if you're female. You're going to be marked riskier if you have children, but you're going to be marked uh, a greater level of risk, um, a, a gestalt, a sum that is greater than the whole of its parts if you are don't know Dutch or female and have children, right? And so it like compounds these different risk factors um, into uh, an even higher um, risk score. And so, and this is people. People are profiles, right? Like people are, um, are, are really complex relationships between different attributes, features, and, and so on, social, personal, political, economic, et cetera. People are not just one thing, um, much as these as data loves to abstract people into being only one thing, individualize us, as Deleuze puts it, right? Blow us apart into these data streams and take one particular point of data to represent the whole. Um, people are relational. People are the product of a lot of different attributes and features and relations. And the system accounts for that in a way, by making these relations riskier than they, you know, as a whole than they are individually, um, and and so it, it. In other words, you have a really, you do have a uh, at once complex and simplistic system um, that uh, leads to outcomes that are at the same time, um, highly discriminatory in very patterned ways, while also very random in its uh, seeming motivation of like finding fraud um, in the welfare system. So when we said earlier that it's, a, it's no better than random guessing, it's really adept and, and, and absolutely not random at finding and discriminating against people uh, and grouping people into these different discriminatory uh, segmentations. It is very random at doing what it is meant to do, which is finding fraud among these groups of people. Um, and, and so, the, like, it, it's... We've really got a dialectical machine learning system here. It's both the uh, synthesis and antithesis. It is simple and complex. It is targeted and random um, all at the same exact time and in all of the worst ways. You know, one of, one of the things I really like and which really Wired and Lighthouse were really only able to do because of how much access they got is articulating very clearly and using these case studies to very clearly elaborate at each step, how arbitrary and discriminatory where the risk assignments were going was right by constructing single mothers, a single mother and also a uh, individual who has poor Dutch language ability. 
you not only get to point out that, you know, the obvious thing, right? Which is that these are two groups which should get aid and should have more aid than the average person and less scrutiny. Then, uh, I mean, no one should have any scrutiny for getting welfare benefits, right? But if you're going to insist, then why, why, why apply it to the people who are the most, some of the more vulnerable groups, right? And this allows us to zoom out and ask larger question, right? Like, okay, are other single mothers or single mothers as a, as, as a group having uh, discriminatory outcomes or poor language? Um, Dutch language abilities, um, you know, individuals, people who are immigrants, people who are foreigners, are they, um, are they also not speaking? Are, are they also not getting represented and they're being discriminated against higher? Well, uh, this leads us to the next section, right? Where they actually use the fraud algorithm, right? To create this, uh, this distribution of risk source scores, um, for not just Sarah and Yusuf, but about 12,700 or, or more than that are welfare recipients, from the city's own trading data, right? And building that distribution, allowing us to actually figure out what is the point at which people are high risk and cross this arbitrary threshold at which internal systems might go investigate this person. Here we have a chart that has a distribution of about a thousand welfare recipients uh, representing their individual scores and there's a cutoff um, for a person who's high risk. And an interesting insight here is that someone who has not patched a, a passed the Dutch language requirement is twice as likely to be categorized as high risk for committing fraud as those who have passed, right? And as we talked about before, as Jathan laid out, right, the reason why, like that, the, the relational process that's going on in the back behind the veil that starts to associate and make predictions based on a pattern extrapolated from that um from that training data right um is is driving it here right this idea that oh the, these people are going to do they have violations right I, I think the quote in here was um Rotterdam's welfare fraud algorithm is trained on millions of data points, but it is blind to what is actually happening in the real world. In reality, different people commit different kinds of violations, from honest mistakes when filling out a form to organized crime. Rotterdam says that many legal violations stem from a law that requires small changes in a beneficiary's living situation and finances to be reported immediately through a process many beneficiaries do not understand. If you have to report things through a relatively complex and opaque legal process, what is one good way to predict whether or not someone is going to accurately do that process? Poor Dutch language skills, right? And as and as as they talked about here, as Jason hide out, then, then you get this association, this erroneous association between not having a full grip on the language and being more likely to commit fraud when in reality it's 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 inability to understand um the legal process and procedures and uh, a lower rate of reporting these small changes or huge changes in your living circumstances, right? Then the algorithm learning those associations and pushing through for it, right? So returning back to this distribution. So we see, okay, if you have poor language skills, you're twice as likely to fall above that threshold where you're going to get flagged for investigation. If you have children, you are two times more likely to be categorized as high risk of committing fraud than non-parents, right? Now, the language, as we talked about, is an obvious proxy, right, for uh, race, right? Poor language skills, you're a migrant, you're coming from, uh, most, you're most likely one of the waves of uh, 
like Middle Eastern uh, migrants that have come to the country or North African migrants that have come to the country and to the continent over the past five, 10 years. And as um, the algorithm points out, right, it has a kind of huge array of variables it uses to analyze how well someone can speak, write, or understand Dutch. And also uses the amount of appointments that they've had with caretakers or with caseworkers about Dutch language requirement. Because remember, and you know, everything you do in that and everything the caseworker knows is going to be used against you. It does not use to flesh out a more positive viewpoint of you. It's almost in all the examples we've seen, it's almost often used to expose you to more scrutiny and more variables, which will bring your which will, you know, raise questions about your risk even further, right? So assigning high risk to Dutch scores or to poor Dutch scores, of course, is assigning them to non-white immigrants who are more in need of this help. Yeah, and, and in Wired, they, they kind of uh, talk about how this has been called a, dot, a digital stop and frisk, right? It doesn't really matter whether or not these groups are more likely to do fraud. In fact, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that that's the case uh, because of this association where Poor language skills lead to poor reporting of changes, which uh, then codes, uh, which then uses the proxy of language as a race and codes it to fraud. And an internal documentation reveals that, quote, its risk scoring system is so inaccurate that according to some metrics, it does little better than random sampling. Our experience also, our experiment also reveals that it discriminates against vulnerable people by scoring them more highly as a result of their vulnerabilities, such as having children or struggling financially. But do women, people who do not speak uh, Dutch, or parents commit welfare fraud more often than other groups, right? And this is what I just said. There doesn't seem to be, um, well, you know, there doesn't seem to be evidence of it, at least when we look at other welfare systems, right? But here they talk about how they tried to press Rotterdam for more data to see whether investigators had found more fraud among specific groups. And surprise, surprise, officials declined to scare uh, to share the information on, quote, unspecified legal grounds. So, you know, while Wired says only Rotterdam knows that vulnerable, whether vulnerable groups, its algorithms found suspicious, really did break the law. I mean, come on, we don't, you don't need to. There's a Occam's razor demands that we say that, yeah, you know, the groups that need aid the most are probably not defrauding Rotterdam. And one of the reasons why they declined to share it on unspecified legal grounds is that they lost a big battle which is that they have a, a deeply discriminatory algorithm um, and have just enough cover to be like, oh, well, actually, we don't use that algorithm anymore. We stopped using it in 2021 and we're developing alternative. But then if you gave, but then, you know, you give, uh, you give the data and what's the data say? The data says you guys are just a bunch of racist, sexist fucks. <laughs> you, you just uh, did a, a racist Mickey Mouse voice and I love it. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, Mickey Mouse is racist. Anytime you hear me put on his voice, they, imagine Mickey Mouse with calipers, golden calipers. Whenever I, I do mean, that he's voice. A, I mean, he's at least anti-Semitic. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. At the very least, I mean, that's that, that has to be a given. Dis, Disney's gonna Disney's gonna copyright strike this episode. We're gonna take it from my cold dead hands. They're gonna be like, I think that voice. That voice sounds a. It sounds too much like Mickey. If they copyright strike this episode, I'm gonna um, listen. I know where Disneyland is. Okay, I know. I know where it is. <laughs> I have words. I'll I'm be out have front. Some words. I'll be out the front of the Magic Castle tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> You've heard of how to blow up a pipeline. Let's see uh, how to blow up the Magic Kingdom and ask Ron DeSantis for, for help. <laughs> I think Cory Doctorow wrote that book. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so so where does this what does this all lead us with, right? I mean, what what do we know? We know that they have a discriminatory model. We know that it has two modes of uh, of, of coding associations that lead to discrimination: uh, poor language skills, uh, proxy uh, language skills are a proxy for race, and poor language skills are used to uh, 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 to insist that there's fraud going on instead of a poor understanding of the legal process that they don't understand in a non-native language, right? So, coding non-white uh, welfare recipients with fraud. And that people with vulnerabilities, such as having children, are, are coded as more likely to do fraud as well, right? Because they're struggling and they're going to be pinched and put to, to put to the wall, right? Um, they're, you know, in this instance, if they're struggling to pay their bills on time and they're running out of money before the end of the month, so on and so forth, right? And we also know that Rotterdam is refusing to offer up the data. We also knew that Rotter- We also know that Rotterdam knew that these groups were getting flagged and discriminated against and tried to remove some of the proxy variables, but used the same system until late 2021. And we also know that, quote, the same year, Rotterdam City Councilor Richard Maudie assisted that there was no bias in both input and output of the algorithm. But no matter what adjustments are made, a mathematical equation can only do so much to accurately spot fraud in the messy reality of how people live. And they quote um, one of the uh, researchers here who says that models are always going to be poor estimators of risk, of actual risk, because algorithms are likely to exclude potentially important personal details, right? You're going to, as we've laid out here, these mathematical models already made two glaring mistakes. If you have kids, you're more likely to commit fraud, or if if you're Oh, white, you're more likely to commit fraud instead of, oh, like, I just can't understand what the fuck this document wants for me. And so I'm just not going to deal with it. And oops, I was supposed to report like a $50 uh, $50 increase weekly to like to my income or some contracting gig that I got that maybe pushes me out of some welfare benefits, right? Or uh, the ability to move some other other place, right? Or winning some housing lottery or something, you know, some other thing that changes your circumstance, right? I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that in the officer in this case, and that doesn't really fucking matter, right? So where does that leave us? Waterdam is not the only city that uses these things, but it is the one that we have the most information about thus far, right? It is the one that, like... We have got the, you know, that we're able to pull out the most data for, able to reconstruct a model of, able to to look at the data for every single welfare recipient and the investigations. I mean, that alone allows, a, well, that does a few things, right? Because of how comprehensive that data is, I think, and because of the, 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 the prestige of the firm that was used, you know, Accenture is not some like fucking garage shop consulting firm, right? This is, you know, this is, you know, top of the industry, one of the top in the industry, right? The collaboration with Rotterdam and then Rotterdam's own internal departments at least gives us a sense that like, okay, this is like a serious, or this is a serious attempt at creating a machine learning algorithm that's going to be responsible for allocating welfare, and that even this serious attempt that was a collaboration between this consulting firm and the city, not two groups of slouches, right? Two groups that might probably consider themselves as like trying to construct ethical systems here failed horrendously. And, um, 
then you know went out of their way, well specifically Rotterdam went out of its way to obscure the failure. Um, but that eventually was pushed to hand over all this information. I think it's also important because, as as they point out, right, they asked dozens of cities for information, and this is the only one that shared the code. This is the only one that shared the fucking code, and it shared the quote list of variables, powering, evaluations of the model's performance, and the handbook used by its data scientists. And when pre- faced with the prospect potential court action under freedom of information laws, European equivalents to U.S. Sunshine laws, it also shared the machine learning model itself, providing unprecedented access. Right? No other city has done that, and what we have discovered is that you know this has fallen in line with a lot of like the smart urbanism smart city projects i think you know jake and you can you know take over here because i think like this this last section the the sunshine in a box really when i was reading it reminds me so much of like how you hear the way in which people kind of in their little rooms and planning sessions and discussions and town halls envision technology will come in and bootstrap and streamline and allocate and then you start building the system um, and it is nothing like that at all and and sometimes people are well aware of this and don't give a fuck or other times people knew that that was going to be the case and just lied right um, or uh, or that you know maybe they do stop it but that they you know there's still all sorts of weird impulses and directives that continue to get them to develop it later on. Like Rotterdam is still going to try to roll out a better, more ethical system, even though the, their first attempt at it fell on its face. Yeah. I mean, this is exact, like, this is absolutely the, you know, this is the, the smartness uh, mandate as uh, Orit Halpern and, and I think Robert Mitchell said, you know, have written in a recent book by that title, right? It's just like imperative to use these smart systems. Um, it is, uh, it is absolutely the, like, you know, the logic of data capital at work here. Um, and it is also the product of what, you know, I'm writing about or just got done writing about in my uh, new book. And we talked about with Brian Merchant on, you know, innovation realism, right? It is this fucking like, you know, uh, ideology uh, that drives the development and, and deployment of like of these material systems. Um, and it, it is, you know, absolutely this, like it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, for whatever reason, these people are so fucking uh, reticent to recognize uh, the, the 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 problems, the issues, the failures, um, both technical, social, uh, political, and economic of these systems. Instead, they are just like compelled to continue trying, right? Continue trying to build uh, these, you know. Uh, god-awful automated systems now based on AI and machine learning, supposedly, right? Um, or continue to implement these different, uh, uh, you know, high-tech systems to do, you know, to detect fraud or allocate resources. Like, they are just, you know, uh, compelled to uh, generate and collect uh, and feed into them, you know, uh, millions and millions of data points. Like it is this, it's a compulsion is what it really comes down to. Right. Like it's this idea, it's this like ideological uh, compulsion to act in these, like, you know, to build these really material systems that have very material consequences on people's lives. Um, 
it is aligned with what they actually value, right? Like they like, you know, as the uh, wired piece notes and as we've talked about, right? Like, you know, the Rotterdam system is not especially novel um, at all. Uh, you know, this is definitely replicated and reproduced all over the place. Um, there are so many examples of, you know, it might not be the exact same technology, but it is almost always the exact same um, uh, ideological, like political basis and motivation for the technology and the exact same material and social consequences of the technology, you know? And, and a lot of this is really built on um, these ideas of, you know, of fraud and fairness, like really idiosyncratic definitions of what fraud and fairness are um, that are, are built into these you know, different risk regimes um, that then become data-driven and automated uh, in various different ways, but always based in very similar kind of, you know, uh, political, economic, and, and, and you know, techno-ideological um, ideas of, you know, of fairness and fraud, um, and replicated across a huge amount of industries. This is exactly what I have found in a, a lot of my research on insurance. You see it in welfare. You see it all over the place where these systems are designed to root out fraud because like fraud is held up as like the, the worst possible, the worst possible thing you can be is a fraudster. The worst possible thing you can do is fraud. Uh, and so like, you know, it, it, you, you create and invest huge amounts of resources, uh, grant huge amounts of power to these technological systems designed to by any means possible find and eliminate fraud always so spurious how they define fraud how they detect fraud how they react to fraud uh, whether it's in insurance or welfare or anywhere else where the language of fraud takes hold uh, it's always based on extremely spurious often idiosyncratic definitions of what fraud is or what fraud is constituted by of how fraud is calculated. And then it's always based in these justifications of like fairness, right? Like we see this in the well in the, the wired report, right? Where uh, they say, quote, talking about, you know, in 2017, uh, Censure, the city's technology partner on an initial version of the project promised that, quote unquote, advanced analytics would be combined with machine learning to create, quote unquote, unbiased citizen outcomes. In a presentation produced at the time, the consulting firm claimed such a system would help Rotterdam ensure that people in need of help received it and that there would be a, quote, fair distribution of welfare. There you go. It's always based in this justification of fairness. You see the same shit with insurance, right? In the way I've talked, in the the work I've done on like the the risk regimes and risk pooling, there it's always based on fairness, right? What does fairness mean here, though? It's idiosyncratic. It's not fair in the way that, like Ed, you were talking about before, of like. Yeah, like these people should receive far more support and far less scrutiny because that would be fair. You know, they deserve it, you know, to, to each according to their need from each according to their ability, right? Um, but instead, what fair means here is a very like 
uh, a financial fiduciary, like actuarial version of fairness, where fair means only paying your uh, uh, only paying according to your risk, only receiving uh, money uh, or well, you know, only receiving support according to your deservedness. And here, deservedness is based on how your risk is calculated by the system, right? In insurance, it's based on how your risk is calculated by the system. Like fairness is always a, a downstream from a risk calculation, whether it's in welfare or insurance. And so you end up having like a kind of bootstrapping of risk and fraud, right? Where they say, well, these risk systems, these fraud detection systems, they're based on fairness, right? Ensuring a fair allocation of resources, ensuring a fair um, uh, uh, you know, payment of, of insurance premiums, whatever. So they talk about it as this kind of like basis, but in reality, it becomes this thing that's uh, downstream. It's defined, fairness in this is defined in relation to risk scoring and fraud detection. Um, and so it's, it's completely backwards in that regard. And so you end up with systems that are not actually designed as they pri as the primary uh, uh, goal or motivation to increase fairness in society. You have systems where the, the, the primary motivation is to um, do risk scoring and do fraud detection. Uh, and then it's meant to be a downstream effect of that is some version of fairness. And that's why you have systems built all over the world in various industries, insurance, welfare, uh, and so on in various countries, whether it's the Netherlands or Australia or the U.S. or whatever. That's why you have systems built all over the world in various places, doing various things, you know, in, in various industries, all doing exactly the same thing, all having the exact same consequences. It's because ultimately they are all based on these real, on the same motivations, the same parameters, the same goals, and those are uh, extremely revanchist, aggressive, uh, uh, and regressive goals of prioritizing risk scoring and fraud detection um, as if these were th uh, uh, th uh, causes that would give you the effect of social uh, fairness um, or, or any version of fairness whatsoever. And of course, when you've got something that is so backwards, it's going to give you results that are completely ass backwards as well. So it's no surprise. And I think this 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 really fantastic case study from Wired validates, verifies, and gives really concrete um, uh, mechanics uh, and examples to how all of this really does work, not only in the way that we thought and knew it does, but in fact in ways that are um, far more... Uh, uh, far worse than, than what we knew, right? Uh, and, and also really reveal, I think, in a, a, a kind of a, a nice way of undermining this idea that these are like, you know, 
extremely complex, sublime systems, um, when in reality they are simultaneously extremely simple and arbitrary uh, at the same time. You know, it, at the same time, and and we need that. We need a lot more of this work that not only reveals uh, the mechanics of these systems. This is it's really important to have a material understanding of them, but uh, uh, a material analysis of them. Um, really get into the mechanics, but also because these kinds of things really not only demystify how they work and what they do, um, but undermine this idea that they are, uh, you know, like these insanely incomprehensibly complex sublime systems. Um, and we need, we, we need to undermine that idea uh, at any, any, any way that we can. It is also really funny at the end, you know, Rotterdam is like, listen, we think everyone needs to understand what they're getting into. We think transparency is so important. That's why we gave you maximum insight into our model, you know, into our data, because we want to be open, we want to be transparent, and we want to learn from each other. And then they're like, okay, so can you tell us who commits welfare fraud? They're like, no, 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 no. Hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not that we don't want to learn that much. <laughs> okay. Legally, we can't learn that much, actually. Um, <laughs> but, but I think this is a good first step. I think even like, you know, Accenture's quote is actually really interesting, right? Quote, we delivered a startup model and transitioned it to the city as our contract ended in 2018. I mean, part of the problem here is that startup model. You spend any time in a city and you spend any time around a startup and there's no overlap. They are nothing like each other, right? And applying this demented, following this demented logic that everything needs to be smart, everything needs to be sleek, everything needs to be profitable, everything needs to be private, everything needs to be... You know, marketable, blah, 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 blah. It's insane. It's insane and it's degrading the quality of life in our cities. It's it's denying dignity to all these workers, uh, to the most vulnerable people who need the resources and are now being punished and, and investigated for fraud if they pursue them. And it undermines also like the solidarity that we're supposed to have with one another. It's, it's part of this effort to drive it out of your head, the idea that you should care about people without strings attached, without condition, Right. And to push further away and further away from our minds the idea that maybe we even have a welfare system that doesn't give a fuck if some fraud is going on. Because frankly, you know, I'm sure, as we'll find out, as is the case in many other cities, that these sort of groups are not doing welfare fraud, right? And not only that, who, truly, who gives a fuck, man? We, you know what the real problem is? Is that they don't get enough welfare, you know? Like... I would double everyone's, double it, and double it and pass it on to the next one, man. That's what we need to be doing. We don't need to be doing all this shit and nickeling and diming. I get we're doing it because there's this um, th there's this idea that you need to balance the budgets, you need to cut social spending, you need to impose discipline, blah, 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 right? But really, you know, the idea here, the move here, the, the, the idea we should be moving towards is how do we get rid of this fucking means testing? Because we can, you know, we taught them... Um, you talked on the show with people about this, about how, like, okay, if we look at algorithmic discrimination and algorithmic policing, and we say the issue is the bias and racial bias, we're fucked. Because they will, in one way or another, figure out how to make it look like that's gone eventually. The problem is, what is this thing doing to also the, our systems as well, right? And we, and we talked about that as well in this episode, right? It's, the discrimination is horrible. 
And that's one reason to not implement it, as is the idea that people need to prove that they're worthy for welfare. Just like the idea that with algorithmic policing, you need to prove that you're not a criminal because you're passing through a place or a box that is historically high crime, and you fit the description of someone who might do that sort of crime. Pushing back against these ideas that you need to prove to the objective algorithm in the hands of uh, authority figures why you should get resources, why you should get access to public space, why you should have mobility, why you should have dignity, right? That's the real issue here. And 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 corporations and, and firms and startups are all too eager to come in and help erode the dignity that people want to have, the autonomy that people want to have, because you can create markets out of that shit relatively easily. You can create a market for saying, okay, well, you know, if someone wants to, you know, one, we'll create a space where people have to prove that they're safe or not a criminal, or that you can impose public safety by, you know, wardening off these areas. But also we can create some sort of system where uh, people will know if crime happens in these or those areas so they don't go there and maybe that will help us yield more predictable boxes where hot crime hotspots are and we can further scrutinize people who are in those areas. Or maybe it'll be a place where people can watch each other like they do with vigilante slash citizen where you know you can send in video and you can stop crime or whatever the fuck, right? Well, how do we figure out, how do we convince people to give up the autonomy and the dignity that they want so desperately? Um, but also convince them to join a marketplace where they can accelerate the erosion of that for other people. Um, and these algorithmic systems are perfect for all of that. I'm sure state planners are not going around saying, how do we dissolve social bonds, right? But when you are talking about this numbskull bullshit about making everything smart in a market, then what the, you know, that shit is incompatible mm -hmm. with creating altruistic social relations on which human civilization flourishes. That, that's so dead on. And this, that's exactly the metaphor here. That these algorithmic systems are acid for social bonds. That's what they are. Because they are, that's, they are dissolving them. They're weakening them. They're making them more tenuous. They're making them snap. Like the, these systems are acid for social bonds. And you want, you want a world, you want a society where people uh, feel isolated and alienated where they act out because they don't have any support systems? Uh, do you want to build a society that, um, you know, uh, justifies and, and amplifies all of your own worst fucking bigotries and this and, and, and fears about the other, the, the other, uh, about how society is running, you know, running off the rails, how there are gangs of, 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 uh, you know, fucking criminals and fraudsters on the, on the move. You want to build that society? The best way to do it is to go about dumping acid on all the social bonds that would otherwise keep that society together, keep it thriving, um, but, you know, build support systems for, for, for people who need them. Like that's what these systems do. They don't, they don't build anything. They don't support anybody. They don't create anything like a better society by any metric. They create 
a worse society and through that create the own conditions that justify their own creation. That's what these systems do. You know, it's fucking RoboCop going out and fucking, you know, uh, arming the gangs to prove that you need RoboCop, you know, uh, or is the U.S. going out and arming uh, whatever fucking insurgents and militants uh, it wants to then like 10 years later be like, that's why you need us uh, to invade. It's doing that, but it's doing it at the level of like social systems, social services, uh, social bonds, like communities. It's it's fucking awful, and 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 it does not need a comp. These problems don't actually need like complex solutions. They don't need a consultant to come in and be like. Uh, you know, let me let me create um, a Rube Goldberg device, but 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 the reverse of the one I created before that caused all these issues. You know, it's like no, you really know. I think you really hit it, uh, Ed, where you're talking about like the distrib- like the um, where does the burden of proof, uh, the burden of risk uh, lie? You know, for right now, it is like the burden of proof is on you to prove that you're not doing fraud, to prove uh, that you uh, need support, to prove that you deserve support, to prove that you do this, that you're not a criminal, right? Like the burden of proof is always on you. That's how these automated systems work. That's exactly how like the robo debt system in Australia worked, where you know sent out uh, almost a half million automated debt letters to people saying, you know, our our faulty system, um, which you know uh, combined um, tax record, uh, tax office records uh, around reported income, or, and then predicted algorithmic uh, suspected income to find discrepancies. And then based on these predictive uh, discrepancies, sent out over a half million automated debt letters to people saying, you have been found to be overserved uh, or undeserving of your know, ex-welfare system. You now owe us sometimes upwards of tens of thousands of dollars in recuperated uh, undeserved welfare, right? And it was, it's a system in Australia, it's called robo-debt, and it was doing the same exact shit, right? Where it's like, it was putting the burden of proof on these people receiving automated debt letters to prove that they deserved the welfare support that they received or otherwise pay these debts, right? Like, and those debts were faulty. They were false. They were inaccurate. They were wrong. Um, but that, but that's not how the system was built. And so, the solution to this is not to create uh, insanely complex means-tested machine learning models that do the opposite. It is instead to simply reverse the burden of proof. You need to prove that you don't need all this support. I'm going to keep giving you so much support that at some point you got to be like, bro, I got enough. I'm, I'm good. Like, you know, I don't need any more support. I don't need any more welfare. I'm, I'm doing good. That's the bur- The burden of proof needs to be not being proved to me why you deserve this welfare support and why you're not defrauding. This should instead be, here's all the support you need. Free food, free healthcare, free housing, free education, uh, free childcare. You're going to get all of it. 
and then you tell me when. It, you know, it's a fucking, you know, waiter at Olive Garden hitting you with the Parmesan or the black pepper. Tell me when. I'll tell you when, when I feel like I've had enough. That's how these systems should work. That's is simplistic. It's removing the burden of proof away from a, uh, a, a negative proof that you don't deserve this stuff. Um, or, or no, I'm sorry. It's moving the burden of proof away from a positive, right? Prove that you deserve this stuff instead of negative. Prove that you don't, that you don't need it, right? Like, just tell me you don't need it. And then that's, that's fine. It's, it's a really simplistic reversal. And, you know, I think it really points to the way that like politics are built into these technologies. Cause if you build a system where the burden of where, uh, where you know, based, based on the system is a, is a kind of, uh, baked in burden of proof model. Um, and in this way, if you need to prove that you, uh, that you deserve this, that you're not doing fraud, then you're going to get one system completely reverse that motivation. Um, and you're going to get a completely different system with completely different politics, right? Like it is a perfect example of how the technical and political details of a system are intertwined with each other. They are relational themselves. You change one and it changes the other. That's as good a place as any to end this. We've been going pretty long. Um, I'm losing my voice here, but this is just a fucking great case study. Uh, I'm really shocked that I have not seen as much coverage of it as it deserves. Um, and I think it just is a, uh, just a, a, a not only a great encapsulation of a critical analysis that we've been laying out, but I think as we've built off from there, it's also just a great case study for thinking about what alternatives should look like and how building the world's most complex uh, racism computer uh, is not the way to uh, go to, to, to run and govern these systems, right? In fact, I think the urge for this like, technological sublime, you know, sublime, this urge for, um, increasing complexity in these models, like it's leading us astray. It's not leading us towards good, socially beneficial outcomes. Um, it is instead prioritizing the innovation. It's prioritizing, uh, the, the system itself. It's prioritizing features like the risk regime, fraud detection, um, at the sake of what needs to be prioritized, which is, you know, building systems that don't dump acid on social bonds, but instead strengthen those social bonds. And the way to do that is simple. It's not complex doesn't require a battalion of policy wonks at some think tank or a bunch of designers at Accenture or whatever. No, it just requires a very organizing institutions and technologies according to very simple rules and principles, uh, creating burdens of proof that are pro-social rather than anti-social. In other words, you know, if you need some, you, you go and get support until you tell us when. It's the Olive Garden model. That's what I'm deeming it. It's the Olive Garden model of building socialism, of building communism. I'm not going to tell you when, you tell me when.
Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, you can find us at patreon.com slash thismachinekills for uh, additional premium episodes every single week. More than you can handle, I reckon, especially if you're joining now. We got a giant backlog. Um, you're going to be telling us when. You're going to say, too much, too much TMK. I can't handle it anymore. <laughs> but uh, in, enjoy enjoy the deluge. Sign up uh, at Patreon. Um, so find us there. And until next time, later. Adios.